Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Stories today as Kansas lawmakers consider a change in the state's prosecution of child sex abuse. 13's Victoria Cassell looks at the issue they specifically want to address. Victoria. Many of the survivors at a statehouse news conference today said it took them years to tell anyone. And by the time they did, their abuser couldn't be held responsible. Unfortunately, no one ever told me there was a time clock for seeking justice for my abuse. Speakers at a Thursday news conference say the KBI's investigation into clergy abuse claims shows why changes are needed in state law. My abuser was never arrested for what he did to me. I assume this meant that no one believed me or that I simply did not matter. The KBI report says investigators identified nearly 200 clergy members suspected of child sex crimes and forwarded 30 cases to local prosecutors. So far, none have seen charges, the most common reason being that the statute of limitations has expired. In Kansas, survivors of child sexual abuse are limited in the amount of time that they have to to hold these predators accountable. In fact, survivors currently only have three years after they turn 18 um, to bring a civil claim against their abuser. That means that a survivor has to accept what's happened to them, be comfortable talking about it publicly, and have the means to file a lawsuit before they turn 21. Four survivors join legislative leaders to share their experiences. When I was finally strong enough to go back to law enforcement as an adult, I was told that the statute of limitations had run out and that I would not be able to pursue justice. I was distraught. Now the survivors are joining lawmakers to back a bill extending the statute of limitations. With this passage of this bill, it'll give other survivors time to hold their abusers accountable. Sexual abuse survivors deserve justice. Hear the SOL bill. Hear us. Senator Holscher plans to introduce bills for both civil and criminal claims. Similar measures have stalled in past sessions, but they hope the KBI reports create new support. Melissa. Hello, fam, and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. I'm so excited to have you all here for our first episode of 2023. 
As you heard just then, uh, there are survivors in Kansas who are now bravely sharing their stories in such a public forum in an effort to change legislation for statute of limitations in sexual abuse cases. Now, you may hear a familiar voice there with Kim Bergman speaking about the abuse she endured at the hands of a known sexual deviant who wasn't held accountable because these limitations stopped that. So you can actually go and listen to Kim's episodes back in episode 61 and 62 where she joined me. And in that, we discuss some of the work that they've been doing in trying to change these laws. But you do also hear another voice on that clip and that will become familiar through this episode as we hear the voice of Tess Ramirez. Before I welcome Tess to the show, I wanted to give an additional trigger warning as this also details abuse against a child. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. Today I'm joined by Tess. Welcome Tess. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here. Now you came, you're, you're coming to us from Kansas, right? Yes, I'm in Topeka, Kansas. Amazing. We were just having a little bit of a joke around about the Christmas time um, because it is very close to Christmas at the moment and Tess has two little ones running around and you've got your Santa right now. So there's a lot happening. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Being Santa and the elves and everything. Yeah, absolutely. We have heard your name before. We haven't heard you before. And um, I just want to remind people to go back and listen to the episodes that we released with Kim and Kim mentioned Tess in her story as well. And hopefully we'll get um, Kim back on to have a chat with us at a later date as well. Um, but you, you are interlinked in some ways, um, but you obviously uh, have your own personal story. Do you mind telling us a little bit about, I guess, who you are and then where your story starts? Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm Tess. I'm uh, an attorney now, which I really became an attorney because of what happened to me when I was younger. I got I'll explain more later, but uh, I was treated pretty crappy by the attorneys in my case. Um, So I wanted to be able to go into the career field to connect with other people and give people a better experience than what I had. Um, And that's, that's kind of what I hope to do in the future. I haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, But right now I'm, you know, I'm working with some senators and stuff to help try and make that possible for more people in the future. Um, I am a mom of two. I've got a six and a three-year-old. They definitely keep me busy. Um, but yeah, that, that's pretty much where I am in life right now. That's amazing. And we, I have seen some like little articles and stuff about you and it's just, it is so amazing. And I think so many victim survivors have this where you almost want to give yourself back power and, you know, and it's not to say that people who don't enter this side of life after following something they've gone through are in any way inept or different or whatever, but you just see so many people who have had these experiences entering social work or entering law or entering law enforcement in some way, I think because their experience was either bad or good and they want to repurpose that pain into some kind of power. Yeah. And it's funny because I've talked to, you know, multiple survivors of the same person that hurt me. um, And all of us have gone into something like this, whether it's social work or obviously I'm an attorney, um, but somebody else is like a psychologist. So like all of us kind of went into something like that. That's incredible. It's just amazing to see the ripple effects sometimes of crimes like this obviously are so profound and so horrible, but sometimes also the ripple effects of this and and the work that we do on ourselves as survivors is so profoundly impactful to the wider community. Like look at all this, like the three of you in your own respective fields being able to impact the wider community now. Like that's an amazing, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of proud that we're all doing that. 
um, you know, you kind of hope you hear always about like the bad cycles about like how abusers perpetuate these cycles of creating more abusers. So it is hopeful to see that some people go the opposite direction and try and break those cycles and create healthy cycles. And you did mention that the man in question or the person who perpetrated a crime against you um, has multiple victims. Do you mind telling us a little bit about kind of what happened and, and the history there? Yeah. Um, so I didn't know, obviously I didn't know any of this when um, he assaulted me, but through the last couple of years, we've done some digging um, and I've got my whole case file from when he was prosecuted and I've learned a lot. So there were a lot of people who called in to the police to give information um, when he was arrested for assaulting me. And it turns out that there were at least at least four other victims um, that he like long term abused. Not there were several other like short term one off things, um, but there was at least four others. So Kim was one of them. And then Kim and I actually con- connected with another survivor um, that happened even before he assaulted Kim, and he raped her like seven years be- approximately um, before he even met Kim. So it's there's been <laughs> there's been a long list of us, and it's horrible to think that one person could have this horrible of an impact on this many people without being stopped. And it goes to show, like, when people are reported and nothing happens, that there is an injustice in that because somebody's been let out and been, you know, allowed to continue this cycle or continue perpetrating these crimes, especially somebody like what he seems to be, which is a preferential sex offender, and they're the worst type. They are the worst. Uh, yeah, he definitely. And you can tell, like, because we all compare our stories, of course, um, and they're all very, very similar. Like, he chose his victim very carefully. He used very similar methods in grooming all of us. So, like, all of us have parents that were going through, like, divorce or separation or some kind of trauma like that. Um, so we didn't have our parents who were really close to us. Um, I definitely didn't. My parents went through a horrible divorce um, and they weren't really involved in my life when all this happened to me. So I like I leaned on him like a parent at one point, And that's kind of where it all started for me. But what's really interesting is so I, I learned that there's something in Kansas called the sexual predator treatment program. So it's where people who have, you know, are sexual predators and have like habitual multiple prosecutions um, and they get put into this treatment program at a facility and they're supposed to like there's no access to like children's movies or anything depicting children or anything like that. And there's all these different levels that's supposed to go up until they can be released back into the public. Um, most of them never got like, there's no graduations. Like nobody ever gets out of it. Yes. As people like this can't be rehabilitated. They're just innately broken. Absolutely. And I have, there's a Louis through, I believe documentary on that. And, you know, there's some very disturbing behaviors that are very normal there, but it is, I think there is no way to, you know, they go through things like chemical castrations potentially or different things, but it is very difficult to ensure the safety of the public with somebody who has this preference. And it is kind of sad, you know, if somebody has this preference and they don't want to perpetrate crimes, but they will forever be a threat. Like that, it is a choice what they're doing offending is a choice. It is very difficult to think that there's no point in rehabilitating them because they won't be. I will say as well, if we go back a little bit, because um, I do know that, that this man offended against you, but you raised a really good point. And I think it's worth mentioning that this was, he was in your life as a gymnastics coach and you had a relationship in that way because gymnastics was like a safe space for you to go. Yeah. So he was, 
um, he ran, he opened a cheerleading slash gymnastics gym right next to my house. So kind of where it started for me is, so in middle school, like I tried out for the cheerleading team and I didn't make it because I'd never done it. I only tried out because my friends were trying out. Um, but, you know, I kind of fell in love with it at that point. And so I wanted to learn all those tumbling skills um, to be able to get on the team in high school. Um, so my dad enrolled me at this, you know, new gym that just opened next door. So I started going and it went from like, you know, one night a week to build up. And then eventually, you know, I'm spending five nights a week there uh, for multiple hours. And, you know, it was a couple minutes away. So my dad would just drop me off. No big deal. Um, but yeah, so he started as my coach. And then the way that it he really started with me is that he was like, oh, you're getting really skilled. I'd love to have you start teaching the younger classes and be a junior coach. Um, here's a job application. So he had me fill out this job application. And that's how he got my cell phone number is he got it off of the job application. And so then he started like calling and texting me. Um, and so at first it was gym related and then it started slowly not being gym related at all. That's a really insidious tactic. Like the the fact that this is probably in his mind already. And that is terrifying because I think when you're of the age where you can get a job and you've got access to a phone, like somebody, an, a, a man messaging you is not necessarily something that's going to raise a red flag. It could be work-related. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly how I started it. Um, so it would virtually be like, oh, can you come to the gym this time? Or we're going to do this parents night. Can you come help with this? I'd be like, okay, yeah, sure. Um, and then it turned into, hey, what's your address? I have these leotards I want you to look at. What should have been like, was the first red flag was instead of like bringing them to the front door, he came around the side of the house and he dropped them off outside my bedroom window. So he would, he did, he like, he never came to the front door. He always, he would come to my bedroom window, which was at like ground floor level as well as windows. Yeah. It's like only got two feet above the ground because I lived in the basement. That's, um, that's terrifying. We all like, so were you living with both of your parents at this time or was the. No. So I was living with my dad and my stepmom, but um, <laughs> to put it lightly, uh, my stepmom and I like hated each other at this time. Um, we have a really good relationship now, but back then, you know, teenage girls and stepmoms, not always a great mix. Um, and my mom lived out of seat at that time. So I would only see her real occasionally. Um, but my dad and my stepmom had my, at that time, just my one little brother. So they had a new baby um, and they eventually had a second new baby. Um, so they were always really busy with the baby and the, I was a teenager. So they were just kind of like, let me go wherever. Didn't really pay attention. And you can see how that would be a glaring light for an offender. You know, you've got somebody who's in a state of a lot of change in their life. They've got an unstable home life. They're busy with this new baby and everything. They weren't aware that he was coming over and to the window or? No, they had no idea. So they, they didn't know about anything until the night that he like went further into assaulting me um, and that I, so Basically what happened that night is we were having, um, there was like an open gym. And so, you know, there's no like mandatory classes or whatever. So only a couple of people were there. Um, the other two girls ended up leaving a little bit early. There's only three of us there Two left early. And then it was just me and him. And he was like, Hey, text your dad and tell him that you're going to be 15 minutes late getting up. And I was like, eh, I don't really want to do that. Cause I was getting sketch vibes at this point. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. Um, and basically he waited for them to leave. And then he 
like, you know, kind of cornered me and started putting his hands up my shirt and rubbing me and hands up my pants and all of that. And basically he kept pushing. I kept trying to get away, but I was kind of frozen. I had my phone in my hand my whole time, but I was just frozen in fear that I couldn't do anything. Um, and so I kept like trying to get away from him, but he just kept following me and it's him and I in the gym alone. Like, what am I going to do? Um, and I, so just kind of kept trying to buy myself time. And eventually I saw my dad's headlights pull up. And so I just like ran out and got in the car really fast. I didn't say a word to my dad. Um, we went home. My dad just dropped me off at the house and went to the grocery store. And then I called my best friend and told her what happened. And she was like, you have to tell your dad right now, or I'm going to tell your dad. Because if, yeah. if she wouldn't have said that, I probably wouldn't have told him at all. Yeah. That's a, I'm so sorry that you've had to do that. Like I've got full body chills right now. Because it's so, you were so young, it's so calculated that he was already planning to do that. Like, tell your dad you're going to be 15 minutes late. Like, he had already planned this, you know, assault in his mind ready to go. And the crazy thing as well is, like, try and say to a lot of men who don't understand women's experiences, like, when you said there's this undercurrent almost and you knew that you were getting sketchy vibes, it's like we have this lived experience in life where we have to be aware at all times. And so for you to be that young and also be cottoning on to the fact that something here isn't right, like that's a lot. I mean, it was, I like looking back on it, like I can see how much I was groomed, but back then, like I didn't know. Um, Prior to that night, he, he acted like he was my boyfriend. So he would text me all the time. He would call me. We would talk on the phone for like hours he drove um, a party bus at night. And so he would call me while he was driving this bus or whatever. And would just talk about random things. Like I know all about his family background. He had pet names for me. He called me like dreamy eyes and random girl. Cause he thought I was random and funny. Um, like all the stuff. Um, so then the night that he assaulted me. Um, so at this point, like my dad comes back calls well first he goes and gets the neighbor because the neighbor's a sheriff and then they called the rest of the cops uh, um next thing you know there's like 10 police officers in my bedroom and i'm sitting on my bed with my phone in front of me and it keeps ringing because it keeps calling me because i'm not answering and i don't remember this part um apparently at this point because i was freaking out um my dad started he he started texting me my dad started texting him back pretending to be me um and so like he was saying things like I'll behave from now on. Just say you're still my girl. Like, you know, you love me. Um, like, like, just act like acting like he was my boyfriend. Like he had done something wrong to my boyfriend. He said, don't treat me like Ben, who was a guy that I had dated and broken up with. So he was acting like I was breaking up with him. Because you weren't answering the phone after he assaulted you. Yeah. Yeah. And then he said, uh, if I need to say, I'm sorry, I am. I will make it far and few between, but you know, it was going to happen, right? I'll make it far and few between. Is that like an additional threat? Yeah. Like he started threatening me. Like I'm not going to, he was like, I'm not going to, you know, I'll make it far and few between. I'm not going to say it will never happen again, but it won't happen often. He he thought even all this, that we were just going to be okay and keep, let him keep doing it. Wow. And when you like, so you're saying like you're, you've called, like you've told your dad when he came home and then the police are now involved and everything. What was that experience like for you? Like, did you have immediate, obviously belief if you're there messaging him off your phone, what was that like? Horrifying. (laughs) So my dad, it left my dad to death, but he doesn't do emotions. 
And so when I say my dad, like, I was like, dad, this is what happened to me. He, I didn't use the word assault, of course, back then. I was like, he put his hands under my shirt. He was touching me. Yada, yada. He just, he literally, he didn't say a word. He literally just walked out and then he didn't come back until like 20 minutes later and he had the cops with him. <laughs> so there was no, like, there was no emotional support there whatsoever. I was just, so then I'm sitting in my room as a 14 year old girl with a bunch of police officers and my phone ringing with this. So it was just a whole lot of awkward and tense. I mean, I can only imagine, but I, I really understand what you mean by that. Like I, I giggled there because my dad's the same. Like there is absolutely no, they don't do emotion. Like I remember him and I didn't talk when I was a teenager for a little period of time. Cause we had a big fight and we never sat down and spoke about it. I think he just said one time to me, like, when are you going to stop being mad at me? And that was it. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's it. Like I, at the end of like, we spent the whole night, you know, talking to cops at the police station, doing the reports, talking, like put in the creepy room where they're like, show me on the dolls where they touched me, which is traumatizing in its own way. Um, and then like, we ended up at IHOP at two o'clock in the morning. And he was like, just tell me what you need and all this. And I was like, all I want is for no one else to know about this. That's all I want. Like, I just want to get this with you and me. And we're, we're just not going to deal with this. And of course, here we are now talking about it constantly. But uh, back then I was like, I don't want anybody to know anything. I don't want my sister to know. I don't want my stepmom to know. I don't want anybody involved. That did not work out. But uh, that, like that, that was the extent of our conversations about this at that entire period of time. And was it just then progressing with the police investigation from there? And it was... Were you involved in that much at all, given your age? Not, not really, no. Um, so he was he wasn't arrested for like two days after that, um, mainly because they couldn't find him. He just kind of disappeared for a while, and then eventually they found him and arrested him. But I like stayed home from school, um, laid really low. The police went and talked to his girlfriend the same night that they talked to me, and she was like, "Oh yeah, he has a history of um, of things with young girls." I don't remember what her exact words were, but she said something about, oh yeah, he's got, he's had problems in the past. So his girlfriend knew and opened a gym with him. Shocking. She was probably a victim of his or whatever, but it is that bystander effect where you do nothing about it or you've gone in and you, you know that he has a quote unquote history with young girls and yet you're putting him or he's putting himself or you're allowing him to be in, in an environment with that entire cohort where he's going to be alone, where they're going to be in leotards, where they're going to be training, where he's going to have to touch them, like that in and of itself is a horrific part. Like that's just beyond. And the <laughs> she, so I don't know what role she played in all of it or how much she knew, but I, I mean, the night, the first night that the police talked to her, she was like, yeah, he has a history of inappropriate behavior with young girls. But also I want, I always wonder because like he and I would, when I say we would talk, I mean, hours on hours on the phone, how did the girlfriend that you live with not know that? Like she had to have some idea, like who did you think he was talking to? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing because this is the thing with people who are groomers as well is they don't just groom their victims, they groom their surrounding environments. And, you know, I, I heard multiple stories where this has happened 
in different scenarios as well where where the offender would say things along the lines of like, oh, there's a, a young girl in need. She's having a lot of trouble. I'm just trying to support her. So I don't know, maybe she's looking the other way and she has an inkling something's going on, but also possibility she's been groomed as well in the sense of, you know, believing different things. I don't, it's, 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 yeah, you never know. You never know. Um, we probably never will, but Absolutely. that is what it is. So after he was arrested and, you know, you've made your statements and you're now trying to move on with your life, what was the process from there? Uh, it was rough. It was rough. So he was arrested in, because it happened in August. Sentencing wasn't until, <laughs> sentencing was in January. Um, but in the interim, we had like, you know, all the priest stuff. Um, and before that, of the preliminary hearing, um, I, the DA asked to talk to me one-on-one without my parents, which in itself is kind of weird. Um, but then the DA like looked at me and he said, are, did this really happen? Or are you doing this for attention? <gasps> and I just, <laughs> I just, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what my face. So this is the person that's supposed to be, you know, advocating for me, protecting me, um, protecting the community and their victim blaming me. And this is after all those other people have called in and said and given statements about what David did to them. So like, it's been a, they know that there's a history here. They know that he has a propensity for this. They are very well aware of that. And he still comes in and confronts you with that. That is horrible. So that happened. And then we left that day and I was just shell shocked because, you know, the one person that's supposed to be supporting you is, is not, they don't believe you. And so at that point, you know, they're talking plea bargains. The the DA doesn't want me to testify for some reason. Like he's like saying, oh, you're a kid. I, I don't, I think it would be too hard for you. I don't think you would do well. And, you know, as an adult now looking back on that and as an attorney, you know, on some levels, I'm like, yeah, yes. Having, you know, a kid is there is hard, but also, you know, it goes back to empowerment. Like I should have been able to make that choice, whether or not I wanted to testify that decision shouldn't have been made for me. And at, like 14 is young, but it's not like I was six. He, he he was saying to you kind of like you wouldn't do well. So he's all, he's kind of putting you down. That's kind of an insult. It's not saying I'm doing this because I want to protect you because under cross-examination, it can be very traumatic or it can be a highly traumatic experience. And I want to avoid it at all costs if we can. You know, like those are the things that he could have said, but instead he kind of chose to put you down and that's, it's quite degrading and, and just weird. Yeah. And that, like, that's, that, that entire scene is what I wrote my, my law school application about was that guy not believing me and not empowering me and not, I mean, he could have gotten a whole lot more time than he did. And we had the evidence to back it up, but this DA decided that it really wasn't worth it and decided to plea bargain instead. Right. So what was that plea bargain that was arranged? Um, 30 months was the plea bargain. Um, he was out after 24. So that's what was that. But, um, so at the sentencing hearing, um, was the first time I, I met Kim. I don't remember it. Um, I remember apparently there was several victims there. I kind of blanked out parts of it. Um, because remember back when I said I didn't want anybody to know. Um, so my stepmom showed up at the courthouse with my little sister. 
um, because they were going to partake. And I had a screaming fight with her in the middle of the DA's office um, right before the sentencing hearing. Because again, you know, nobody listens to the victim and does what they want. And then that person gets put down more. So that was mine. So we're sitting in the front row. They put him in. He won't, they bring him into the courtroom. He won't make eye contact with me at all, which infuriated me. Um, it's it kind of like he wasn't acknowledging what we were there for. Hmm. Um, but after, after everything was done um, and they're like about to lead him out, all I can remember, and I don't, I don't know who said it, but one of the other survivors was there, um, but they leaned over the bar and they like whispered to him, got real close to him and whispered and like, I hope you rot in hell, you bastard. And then they let him out of the courtroom. And that was that. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know who you are, but I like you. Brilliant. I love that. <laughs> I don't know. So somebody got party marks. I, I still don't know who it was. I should ask. Yeah. But that's an a, a incredible kind of. I don't know, series of events. It's a horrible experience for you. And I hate that, you know, you've said, you've set a boundary. I don't want other people to know. Like, even if he did tell her, cause maybe it's a safety thing or whatever, that that's different to showing up at the the hearing. It's just be there passively for a child right now. Don't, you don't have to put yourself in the middle of it. And that's so hard as well. I fully feel what you mean there. It's not fair for you to have to feel that way, especially at something so large. But isn't it great that through the power of media and through the the case getting the attention that it did, that that there were other people that were able to come and be there and almost ha- share in the joy of at least him being accountable once? Yeah, yeah, it's it's been wild, and even like the last two years since everything came back up. So, <laughs> um, the. Friday night before my law school graduation, my dad was like, Hey, I got this weird message for you from the news. And I was like, what? Um, so some news person found my story about him and this was, they were doing the safe sport thing and they wanted to interview me and talk about it. And so of course it was law school graduation week and I was panicking because I, back then I didn't talk about this like at all. Like I didn't talk about it. It wasn't something I was comfortable talking about ever it was in my past I didn't deal with it that much that's changed a lot now I'm um, starting with that news story which that news story that's how I reconnected with Kim that's how we connected with other survivors um the news people helped us all get in touch with each other but that ended up so two different stories ended up happening so there was like the national one and then there was a local one and both of them ended up being nominated for Emmys and then the national one actually won which is just mind-blowing that that our stories like were shared that much and I feel like it's so much easier because now now you search his name you find everything you'll find it all but so many people other people have come forward and feel comfortable coming forward because they've heard us share it publicly so I just I think being able to share stories just like this in these podcasts and making people feel comfortable talking about the hard things that have happened to them it just it brings so much more awareness to the issues absolutely and you know it's a case with so many different stories where there's been prolific offenders like Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, you know, Larry Nassar. There is the moment that that thread kind of started to unravel, people collectively, I think you give each other permission in a way. And that 
guilt and that shame and that gaslighting that we have in our brains that somehow makes us feel like we were at fault or somehow makes us feel like it wasn't bad enough. That kind of is dimmed because you can hear the similarities and you can see other people saying it wasn't okay. And it gives people permission for the first time in their lives. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the, I mean, the same thing has happened. Um, like me and Kim talk, talk a lot about all of it. Um, and I know she talked about it on her podcast that, you know, she kind of blamed herself for stuff that happened, but I mean, you listen to everything that's happened to her. I mean, she, DCF substantiated it. They took it to the DA. The DA declined to prosecute it. Like what more can you do? The system failed her and, and then it failed everybody that comes after her. Yeah. Because they didn't take action when they had the evidence. Yeah. And I think it's worth like just a quick recap being that, yes, she did go to the police. The police were eventually um, told about what had happened. DCF is um, the Department of Child. Child and Children and Families. Children and Families. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the the organization responsible for children's welfare and children's safety. They have basically said, yes, what she's saying is true. This, in fact, did happen. It's gone to the defence attorney. It's gone um, up to a point where they can charge him formally through the court systems, and they declined to do that on whatever grounds, not being enough evidence or whatever, as if the DCF statement saying that it did happen isn't enough. And then because of that, he's not held accountable. There's that other thing, I think, within offenders' minds where they get away with it or they scrape by getting away with it, and it's, it's like, I'm invincible. I'm going to continue to get away with it. And then every single person that he offended after that is like, should be charged as a crime against the state for not doing anything about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there's, there's so many people. I mean, even in, if you read my case file, like I, I was the one he was focusing his attention on for that time period. But there were also numerous girls in the gym that he would ask, like, what color bra are you wearing? You should wear a black and lacy one or you should not wear a bra to practice. And he would, like, touch us while he, we were doing stretching. And he did this to all to a lot of the girls in there. And so, like, it's not just, like, yes, mine was, you know, more than that. But all of these other people were affected as well. Absolutely. And it's so hard to explain as well in an environment how he could do this in plain sight. Because when you're in a gym and you're stretching, it's not uncommon for somebody to come over and push you down or to stretch you further or to be touching you and spotting you. So there is normalized behaviors like that in the gym. So maybe to another onlooker, it might not be seen as something like that, but you know when it's an insidious touch and you know when it's like a proper professional. Yeah, yeah, you do like being there you do but also he like like you said he's really good at this by this point so he would he had the gym split up so like our there was only one coach per like room so there'd be you know six or seven of us girls and him in one room and then there wouldn't be a coach in anywhere in visible sight it's terrifying and it's just like you know you can choose the layout of the gym you can choose times for classes you can do different things and to orchestrate the alone time is quite terrifying to think about like as well like how calculated this was and it it, you know so many people don't report we know that you've collectively given other people permission to come forward but how many more people out there have potentially been hurt by this person and he's just honed his skills at doing this over time yeah and you know the the first one that we know about he actually raped her and that was you know early 90s 
but she like to this day does not want it out publicly, which, you know, everyone, everyone heals differently. And I, you know, no shame against her in that. I, but it's just, it's horrifying because it makes me think, you know, if my dad hadn't pulled up at that, at that time, it, that probably would have been my story too. And it is, I love that you also spoke so candidly about your response in that moment, you know, having a phone in your hand, but, you know, having somebody and that's bigger than you, that's a man, that's a presence, that's an adult, like you've got so many things at play here. And I just, I like that you have said, not because it happened, but just that you mentioned the fact that you froze and that you weren't sure what to do. Like that's an important thing to discuss as well when we're talking about people's responses and every, I, so many people that will message me or something have this somehow guilt that it's their fault because they didn't run away or they didn't fight back. And that's something that I really want to destigmatize. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, you know, and people will ask me like, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do this? And I'm like, I, I was not in control of my body at the time. Like I, it's almost like you kind of like take yourself out of your body in your mind in that moment. Like I froze and I did not, did not move a muscle at all. And like, I remember trying to say stop even, but even getting words out was hard. And you're right. He was like, we were in a gym. He trained every single day. There was, if he wanted to, if I tried to run, he was going to catch me. It wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. But I, I think that's really common for a lot of people. So they, you know, people would say fight or flight. And I'm like, neither. I, I just stand there. I apparently did hear, um, I think it was through the book, Invisible Women. Is that what it's called? I'll have to double check. It's a book on how it's a man's world kind of basically and the statistics and stuff. So, for example, um, test dummies in cars are based on men's bodies. They don't account for breasts. Seatbelts probably aren't the design that would would save more women's lives because they're not tested on for women. Um, so little things like that. And I think it was through this book that I was reading that the fight or flight was based on a study of 100% men. So there's never been a study that's encountered on that women <laughs> or children who will have experiences that are to comply because we've been through things in our lives and to freeze because to fight might be to anger somebody further. You know, your your instincts are telling you this is the best way for you to react right now so that you survive. It's saddening that that's tr- like, it's true though. Like I've, all of these studies mostly are done on men. Like that's, that it's true. It's true. Uh, I was, I was listening to a podcast the other day about something similar to that. And they were talking about basically just how, like how to, how to deal with this. And, you know, trauma does, you're fine because like your physical being is fine. Like going through something traumatic doesn't harm you. Like, do you have all your legs, like limbs and yada, yada, like, do you have all that? Yeah. Then you're fine. You survived. I'm like, okay. But clearly you haven't read the studies that show that trauma biologically changes your brain and the way that your brain functions. So clearly you men need still need a little more education because physically it still does change you. And that's, you know, why Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score is so popular because it has made available very complex terms and made them very relatable to different people. You're having complete reactions in your body you're having complete physical reactions to different types of stimuli you know and i think that people say things that oversimplify them and it's just so stupid because the placebo effect even is completely real your mind has the ability to change reality for your body and that's an incredible thing just because 
you might physically be fine now has got nothing to do with anything. Like that, that's not, that's got nothing to do with the price of fish. It's just like, okay. No, I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm, I can physically move and everything, but that's saying that then to be traumatized is to be physically harmed. And that's what that's also stating. And that's not a reality for a lot of things. That's completely undermining most victims' experiences. And that people always are like, oh, you know, you, you're doing better. You seem great. Yada, yada. And I'm like, but it only takes like one thing to send you back there. So um, my husband and I were at a soccer game. And I think Kim mentioned this briefly on our podcast, but we were at a soccer game. Um, and it was like a big championship game. So, you know, it's super crowded, extra security, everyone's screaming and drinking and, you know, chaos. So we're there like halfway up the bleachers. And then I look down and he's the, the guy that assaulted me. David is standing at the end of our at the down at the bottom of the bleachers. That's the security guard. And I like froze, froze, could not move. And my husband looks at me and he's like, are you okay? Cause I apparently just like went completely white. Like I almost threw up right there. Like I could not function at all. And I just like grabbed my husband in the middle of this championship game. And I was like, we got to go right now. Right now we got to go. And he's like, what is wrong with you? And like, as like, we, all I could say is we have to leave like over and over and over. And so we get like halfway home before I could talk. And I was like, um, so that was the guy that assaulted me. And then it was a good thing we left. Cause I think my husband probably would have beat him up. if he knew. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's so hard when you try to explain to somebody as well the ripple effects that has on your life. Like you've now, you know, gone on with your life. You've, you've married your husband. You're going to, you know, these, this is something that you both should be able to enjoy together. Get drunk as shit, be idiots, like have fun, like, you know, like do, do normal yeah. things. But then to have that ruined by this man who still is like, that's just so frustrating that he's taken something again from you in many ways. Like he's, he's robbed a moment in your life and it's so infuriating. It is, but it's, it's like, it's those big things, but it's also like the little things. So like, I, like never will I ever be the parent that can drop my kid off at dance class and leave. I will never do that. I will always be everywhere that they are. Like I am, I am now that mean mom that will not let my kid have sleepovers anywhere. Like if people are going to sleep over, that's going to be at my house. Cause I don't trust any adults ever because my, like my parents thought that my gym coach was great. They thought he was phenomenal. They were, he was like, you know, buddy, buddy with everybody. Everybody was all the parents were comfortable with him. Um, and so like, it wasn't until what's really interesting about is just things I learned reading through my file. So apparently, so my little sister went there for a little while and apparently he made her uncomfortable. Um, and so she stopped going and she told my dad that. And so my dad knew that not my little sister was there uncomfortable and he like had some sketchy vibes about Dave at that point, but I still kept going. And then this happened. It's so difficult because I think as parents, a lot of people, or at least of community members, it's normalized to have creepy vibes from a dude. Like it's so, it's such a common joke for people to say things like, oh, weird uncle Al at the Christmas party who like hugs you or kisses you on the lips for too long kind of thing. And I'm like, the fact that that's even normalized as a funny thing is, is weird as well. And because there's no quote unquote evidence potentially in a situation, you almost gaslight yourself as well into thinking he's not going to do anything. Maybe she's just oversensitive. And instead of putting the spotlight on his behavior, you put it on hers. And I think that's where we fail so many children as well from recognizing that this, if he gives off a creepy fucking vibe, get the kids out. Like, you know, maybe be more present and go to training and make sure nothing sketchy is happening. Sit down and have a really serious conversation with you about what's going on. Like, there's a lot that was missed there and you don't ever want to blame parents. I think they they probably do the best at the time that they can, but also we've got to talk about their failings so that we don't have them. And I agree with you. If I ever had kids, they would never go to a sleepover because that's where I was assaulted. And I can't imagine putting a, my a, my child in, the, in somebody else's care like that. Like I just, I completely understand that. So I think the protection comes from as well learning from mistakes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, like you're talking about like the creepy uncle Al example, like you have to teach children where the boundaries are. So if you teach children that, you know, it's okay that he's a creepy uncle, then they're never going to speak up when they have a creepy gym coach because they think that's okay. They don't know where those boundaries are anymore. So that's, like that's something that I've talked about with my girls, like 
since day one, like we have a book we read about, like, you know, you're in control of your own body. We don't do secrets. Um, these are the people that are, like, you know, allowed, like you're only your parents are allowed to be around you when you're naked and like that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, making it very clear, like, these are the people that you can trust. These are the people you, but you really can't trust anyone. Yeah. Cause you don't really know them until you do. Absolutely. I mean, pedophiles and people who offend against children don't have a light on the top of their head that says that. And most of them <laughs> have honed their skills over time and aren't, they're hiding in plain sight. So you're exactly right. But I think it is a talk about very, like you just said, secrets. And I think that's something that as a, not as a parent that I wouldn't have thought of, but I did read it in Joelle Castiex's book, which is called The Well-Armored Child which I think is, I talk about it all the time. It's just a wonderful way to have safe conversations with children at different ages about this stuff. And I'd never thought about the act of keeping a secret because what adult would say, don't tell mommy, keep this a secret. Like that's not something that's okay. And even as an auntie now, I'm like, I, I don't know, maybe if I spilled some red wine on the carpet, I was like, I feel like, don't tell mommy. <laughs> but it, <laughs> Even as I giggle about that in my mind, I'm like, I would never say that because it's so inappropriate to tell a child to keep a secret. It's so sinister. I mean, it is, but I feel like, like you and I have that perspective on it, but like talking to my husband, like he doesn't see the problem with like, so like buying Christmas presents, like they picked out a present for me and he's like trying to tell them to be quiet about it. And I'm like, okay, we can do surprises. Surprises are fine, but I was like, you need to change the way you think about this because you can't teach them that secrets are okay. Like they should never be keeping anything from me. So even like, even, even my husband who tries his very hardest to understand me and the way I view things, uh, I, I still have to teach him how, because he has daughters. I'm like, you're a boy. I'm sorry, but it's, it's different for you. And not to say that things can't happen to boys. And I think that's an incredible insight as well. And, and especially around, you're not saying you can't keep it a secret from me to have a surprise the surprise should be the emphasis like you know it's we're not hyper fixating on the the secrecy thing though I'm like that so you can still have these wonderful things in life you're not really missing out you're just reframing the way that you're talking to your children about it and even the fact that you're constantly having this back and forth just shows how well-rounded your children will grow up to be because they've got parents who care so much about how they're communicating with them that's amazing we try we try I mean you know you can only you can you do your best as a parent like you said you know no parent's perfect um, but we, you, all you can do is keep learning and keep trying to get better. Absolutely. And I think when you've got parents who are dedicated to do that, you're going to have children who are going to grow up and have education there and be more armored against people like this because they're going to have a united front. They're going to have an understanding and they're not going to be the ideal target for somebody who wants to offend against children because they've got a good relationship with you and they will tell you if something happens or if something makes them uncomfortable. So, you know, I think it's such a community level effort as well in many aspects that we need to teach. It's not weird for you to say my children are not going to sleepovers. Like that's not weird. I'm sitting in the background going, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. You can say that, but, but everyone else is like, uh, what is wrong with you? They're like, oh, you're a helicopter parent. I'm like, huh. yeah, I think that's like, I completely agree. Like I, Without maybe their understanding, and I can see how people would be like helicopter mom or whatever, but I, I would be doing the same thing. You know, I don't want to scare anybody else as well. We don't want to scare people, but by pretending that this doesn't happen is to put your children in more danger. And, you know, collectively as a community, we can't trust everybody, sadly. 
and that means that we miss out on some things. You can still do sleepover things without sleeping over. You can still have do fun things without that. And, you know, maybe your house is the house that people have sleepovers at so that you can be there and make sure they're safe. <laughs> like, oh, oh, we're going to a sleepover? Awesome. About to make a mom friend. Yeah. <laughs> I'm coming with you. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't mean I you didn't mean I was coming to sleep over as well cuz I've bought my sleeping bag. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> oh, that is so funny. I love that. <laughs> just to sleep on the couch. But no, it's true and I think yeah, even just having these conversations is important cuz even if it plants a seed in somebody's mind, it's not saying that they've failed. It's saying we're continually learning here and when you, this is the importance of lived experience in policy making, in decisions in government, in things like that, because these are things like you said about your husband that people just don't think about. They don't consider, they don't understand or know the dangers. And lived experience talks to that so much. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, that's, that's why like working with a team of survivors right in Kansas, we're trying to um, change the statute of limitations. Um, so it's currently, you know, you have three years after you turn 18 to bring a civil suit against the person who sexually abused you. Um, but, you know, one of our ways to try and get people to understand that like that's not long enough um, is everybody sharing their story so that people can see the human side of it and understand, oh, like, like when I was 21, like I didn't have the money to hire an attorney to, even if I wanted to, like, there's no way, there's no way. And it's just, why is there a statute of limitations anyway? I mean, why would there be a statute of limitations on a crime so heinous? And you're right. So many studies are coming out. The Royal Commission into Institutionalized Child Sexual Abuse in Australia came out and it found that victims of child sexual abuse in those institutions and in other organizations, the average time was like 35 to 45 years to the time of disclosure. But there's been multiple people who have been found guilty following that, and there's been multiple people with historical cases be able to get through because we don't have a statute of limitations on sex crimes in Victoria. So I just I don't know why there is any for even a criminal case, but I, I'm, I'm so thankful to see you fighting so hard to get this changed. Well, and a lot of the pushback is, you know, a couple of things. One being churches don't like to look bad, and, you know, Catholic churches here have a bad history. Um, and so they don't like that. But then also, like, there's always the politicians that are like, oh, it costs so much money. We're going to have so much burden on the courts, blah, 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 blah. So there's like the, they did a study and, you know, they said it would cost, it would be like, it would increase caseloads by 2%. And they talked about how that was going to cost like over $100,000. And I'm like, okay, but like reframe it. So that's 2% more of survivors that are one, getting their justice. And how many cases are we preventing from coming? Because now that person's name is out there as an abuser, and now we can prevent them from harming other people in the future. Like, isn't that the point? Like, that's our goal here is to stop this from continuing to happen. It's a ridiculous argument to say that this is too much of a problem to address it. That's what they're saying. They're saying it's too, look, sex crimes are too prevalent. If we do something about it, then we're going to burden ourselves with work. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? That's that's for the Department of Children and Families. I'm like, isn't this your this is your job? This is the entire reason you exist. Like, mm. come on. But I mean, even after like the ones that take a really long time, like you said, like a lot of people don't want to talk about it. it. Up until two years ago, I didn't talk about it at all. 
I'm not going to like preparing for this. Like I'd reread my file and brace myself because it's hard. It's hard to talk about it. Like I've gotten a lot better at it and, you know, I cope with dark humor sometimes, but you know, I connecting with other survivors really helps and hearing other people share their stories and like getting to know Kim has really helped me, but it's the same with all these other people. Like once you get one person to tell their story, yeah, there's going to be more people coming forward, but that's a good thing because that means all of those bad things that they've kept hidden for so long are finally coming out and can finally hold all those perpetrators accountable. And this groundswell that you've created with Kim as well is incredible to bring light to the fact that many people couldn't get justice or couldn't civilly sue because that time had passed for them. And, you know, I think it's just an incredible thing that you're both doing. Can I ask as well, following the sentencing when he got out and and you've seen him since, do you have any knowledge or anything of where he is? Is he on a register that you can track? Um, Okay. So he's on a registry um, for some time. He, so we follow him on social media um, and mainly to try and keep him from hurting other people because like we've talked about, you know, he's an expert at this point. He knows how to groom people. He knows how to hide everything. Um, he got married and I've tried desperately to get his new wife, the information about everything that he's done. Like I, I've Facebook messaged her my entire file, but she won't open it. We know where he lives. We sent the news. They slammed the door in their face. Like, like there's only so much you can do to try and warn people around him without like, physically showing up there and harassing, but like physically confronting him and like that makes me want to throw up. I could not, could not do that. Um, but like ever since it happened, I've been, you know, Googling him, trying to make sure he wasn't opening a new gym somewhere or doing something like that. Cause that was, that was the entire reason I went forward with the criminal thing is because I wanted him to stop. I didn't want him to have access to other girls. That's the whole point. But I mean, he got married and that lady has grandkids and I just, I am terrified that maybe he's hurting one of them. I don't know. I don't know anything about what's happened in their family life, but I just see Facebook posts of grandkids and I, it just makes me sick. Cause I I wonder if those parents, like if that, if the parents of those kids know, like, did they, do you know who your new grandpa is or what he's done? Yeah. I I don't know that she knows. Is there a legal thing about him having access to children? Like legally, is he allowed to be in a home with a child? Uh, Yeah. He just has to register. Wow. That's fucking terrifying. Um, Right? (laughs) But, I mean, you know, like, I I really, really hope not. But, you know, when people are long-term prolific offenders, sadly, the reality is likely that he does have access to other children, whether that be those children or others. And if he's not being actively and effectively managed – then how do we have a certainty that he's not doing that? We don't, and that's terrifying. Some of the ways to make people accountable is to be able to sue them or to be able to criminally charge them. And when victims are gagged by laws that shouldn't exist for some reason, they have just put them in place to further hinder victims of crime from coming forward. Three years after you turn 18 and you're like, that's it. Like that doesn't even make sense. Like, And in Kim's case, that was so infuriating as well because she did come forward when she was that young. It just wasn't taken seriously. So how is that not, like, that's just so fucked up. Yeah, and that's that was one of the, and it's one of those, like, 
terrible realities that we face as fans, like both her and I, like we were not the first ones. We are not the first documented ones. Yet somehow we got hurt because the system failed us. And, you know, now we're in this position where we're trying really hard to stop that cycle from happening over and over and over and hurting other people. But, you know, it's a ter- nobody wants to talk about this. This is not a fun topic for any adult. And, you know, it's it's hard to talk about. So, I mean, you do everything you can and you hope that you can get the politics to work in your favor. Absolutely. And I talk about this a lot, that crime is a social construct and we will continue to change it as our views and uh, change and align through time. And, you know, just to have you both and all of the other survivors and all of the supporters getting behind you to change this, I think is an amazing thing. So if somebody wants to help in any way to support what you're doing, how can they help? There's a lot of different ways. Um, there's a petition out there to help support the bill that we're trying to pass. Um, it's We're going to start introducing all of that legislation stuff here in a few weeks. Um, but I mean, you know, if you're somewhere not Kansas, you know, I just recommend looking up what your local laws are. If there's a statute of limitation, reach out to your legislation, to your senators, push, ask the questions, ask the hard questions. Why do we have this? How long is it? Why is it like this? And see if you can make some change in your area too. Cause it, it's not just Kansas that has the problem. It's everywhere. And I think Kim actually said as well, which I thought was a really powerful quote. I think she said, you don't, there's a clock that starts ticking and you don't know that it's already started. Like you're not aware of this thing that exists there because people don't care about it until it happens to them, sadly. And it's, you know, how do we engage people and make them see, but you don't know this and you don't expect to be a victim of a crime like this either. That's And it's very true. So I, like, like I said, I focus all my time and attention on my daughters. I'm like, I always put myself like, I will do everything in my power to prevent this happening for my daughter. So when I talk to other people about it, I'm like, do you have a daughter? Do you have grandkids? Do you have a sister? Do you have mom? Ask them what their experiences are. Ask them because, you know, statistically speaking, most of them have probably been assaulted or, you know, abused in some way, unfortunately. So talk to someone around you and I bet you'll get a perspective you weren't expecting. And a story you weren't expecting, especially from a different mindset as well. I think it can be quite jarring in this day and age to hear grandma talk about the normalized things that were happening back then, even if she wasn't to say it was a problem to hear somebody normalize that type of behavior because that's been so normal for them growing up can be quite jarring as well. So it's not always the victim identifying as a victim or having an impact that negatively impacts them as well. It's like just anecdotally take away from that story what somebody said. Like I just remember my nan would always say things like that and, you know, about especially just random things like, bless her, she died at 96, but things like, you know, you better get good at um, scrubbing the floors and she would wax the floors and things like that before people come over and get people, get my her husband teas. And she, you know, like she was very domestic housewife, very, you know, they lived on a farm, whatever. Um, but that was so normal. And she was like, you know, telling me this as like a teenager about how I should treat my boyfriends. And I'm like, get out. <laughs> Nan, no. <laughs> a couple of like months ago, my brother said as well, oh, remember when we'd like wash the dishes at Nan's place? She had like these hands that could go into this really hot water and she'd never be bothered. And I was like, anecdotally take away from that the fact that she has been the one putting her hands in boiling hot water her entire life, the same way that 
mum has the same. Like the reason that you and dad don't have that is because you've got sensitive baby hands that haven't washed dishes before. <laughs> and he, like, he looked at me and had this realization, I think, of the pervasiveness of patriarchy. And he was like, well, man, that was pretty powerful. <laughs> <It's> like- <laughs> right? Like, it's uh, the, the situations you find yourself into. So, my daughter and I were walking through at like Hobby Lobby one time. And one of the employees there, like, was talking, like, walked by and said something. But then he, like, stopped and he talked to my daughter and he put her his hand on her shoulder. And I don't even remember what he was talking about. He was telling her, like, you better behave for your mom or something like that. Um, but he walked by and my my daughter was still offended. She was like, that guy put his hands on me. And so I was like, I sat down with her in Hobby Lobby and had this sort like whole talk. I'm like, baby, you know, if somebody puts their hands on you, you don't like it. Hit them, tell them. I don't care what you do. You have a right to tell him that he can't touch you. I don't care who he is. And so it just like, but that guy thought it was completely okay to touch my five-year-old in public that who he'd never met before. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, why is that okay? It's an it's so weird, isn't it? Like, you're just like, what? But also, like, so many people don't know how to act around kids, I think, as well. But, like, your default should not be to touch them. <laughs> That's just a general rule. Yeah. Stay far yeah. away. <laughs> like, we're, I'm I'm big on consent. Like, if you ask my three-year-old for a hug and she says, nope, that's it. Don't hug her. Don't touch her. She, but it's teaching she's free, to but ask, she still yeah. gets a voice. Yeah, but it's teaching. I, and I love that, like. It's teaching them that they've got a choice. And I think that's something that we never had. Like I would, you'd always get to a party or something and be like, go kiss Nan, go kiss this person, go hug that weird uncle that smells like beer and cigarettes. Like you had to do that, you know? So you don't, you learn throughout time that consent is not your own. You have to do what other people say. So it's a weird thing to put up boundaries and to keep them. It's, but to teach your daughters that from the beginning is so powerful. It's, and it's funny that you say that because like, you know, my family, after I got assaulted, you know, I was real sensitive. Like I did not want anybody touching me ever. I did not like to be hugged did not like to be touched. And so when we go to family events, like my family would openly make fun of me for not wanting to hug them. Like openly they'd be like, oh, ha ha, Tess doesn't want to, won't hug us goodbye because she doesn't love us. <laughs> and I just had to roll with it because like, what do you, at 15, like, what do you do? When your family is openly making, your entire family is making fun of you for not wanting to be hugged. And you're like, oh, I don't want to raise my hand and be like, oh, I got sexually assaulted. Um, that's why I don't want you touching me. And as if your dad is not being like, shut up. Like. Yeah, no. Or the stepmom mm-hmm. as well. Don't say that to her. Like, whatever they want to say, like, I don't, they don't have to tell everybody, but to not have anybody be like, that's so horrible. And that's something that will stay with you forever, that feeling as well. And it's a horrible thing to have these family events and everything happening. It's it's just, it's so invalidating when you're a victim of a crime to feel like you can't even experience the world afterwards and be shot down for the things that are going on with your trauma response is just horrible. It is. And it's been like weird the last couple of years, because like I said, I didn't talk about it for many, many years. I like, if you got really close to me, I'd tell you the story one time and then we were never talking about it again. But obviously that's changed a lot in the last couple of years. Now we're talking about it publicly, which, you know, has been really healing for me. But at the same time, it's still hard. So like tonight when I go to bed, I'll have a nightmare because talking about it brings it all up and it puts it all fresh in my mind. My mind. And I have like, I used to I have this like recurring nightmare where I'll go to the mall. And when I get there, he's holding the door open. I don't know why. But so then seeing him at the soccer game, like it just, it made it all real. So now every time 
I kind of go back into it, all of those start again. Like it never stops. I go through waves where like I feel I'm good about it for a while and then I'll have like a dark week and then I'll feel good about it. Um, but I always come back to, you know, my entire goal in life is to try and prevent other people from having to deal with this for the rest of their lives. And it's so important as well that you highlight the ongoing impacts of what's happened because people are like, oh, you know, you got justice, it's done. It's like, no, I, I, it's actually not. And when I said before, he's stolen that moment from you. Like you just said, like there are so many moments through your life that are impacted because of this. And people don't understand that the ripple effects of things that like sexual violence, especially sexual violence as a child, it impacts every aspect of your life. Like we're talking about your ability to sleep. That's obviously a huge thing. And I suffer a lot from nightmares as well. Like very, very vivid nightmares. I'm always getting chased by some kind of man. And, you know, I think doing this definitely brings it out. I'm like, why? I wonder what I did that day that poured on that nightmare. And I was like, oh, you <laughs> Mm-hmm. wake exactly. up sweating like <laughs> but it's something that you know we need to talk about and this is why I, I I'm so grateful for the people that choose to come on and share because it is so difficult it does bring it up and you might mention something one time to a friend or a family member but it's not often that you sit there and talk to somebody about it kind of end to end either so it's a lot in a short period of time to have to deal with it is and you know I but I am always grateful whenever I find another person that's willing to like, Hey, can I talk to you? And then they tell me their story. And, you know, cause you know, once you reach that step, a lot of people start healing in a way that they haven't before. So I'm just, I'm glad that more people come forward and more people are healing just by other people sharing their story. Not only like going through what you've gone through and, and fighting so hard now, but I think it is like an important thing to remember that there are people who have been convicted of sex crimes that could be living right near you. You know, in the States, you do have the sex offenders registry, so people can look things like that up. In Australia, we do not have that. Um, we don't, I don't know if we don't track our sex offenders. I think that there is a registry, but it's not available to the public. There's a, there's a law in the States called Jessica's Law, and it's basically to protect girls that are under the age of 14. But like, there's all these special rules and all this tracking. So then I did a project and I analyzed the registry in our county. And I looked at how many of them were um, basically break violating their registration status. And like, I don't know, I think it was like 35% of them were unaccounted for. So even having a registry, like what's the point if you don't actually check up on them or find them if they disappear? And some of them have been missing for years. That's fucking terrifying. Like that is just like, I don't, right? like, I don't know how you sleep at night ever having children in this world. It is just. I just had this conversation with my husband yesterday. He was like, oh, but I check the registry all the time. And I was like, I don't because I don't believe it's accurate. I don't think everybody's accounted for. I think it's just as likely that the neighbor is a pedophile as, you know, and that person that it says that lives there probably doesn't even live there anymore. Like, yeah, it's probably not today. accurate. Mm-mm. But it's important that we start to have these conversations as well about how we can better utilize technology to to solve for these problems and things as well like you don't have to have a system now where you've got to be within a certain period of space with a with an ankle tag on kind of thing like you've got so many things that could be done I don't know like let's come up with some crazy ideas and do some pilot projects do you know what I mean like let's insert trackers into people's bodies or something (laughs) insert trackers (laughs) yes like we could air tag them brilliant they can't take it out like, and if you get so close to a school, it sounds an alarm and 
Yeah, it's ambulance. an internal alarm. Like, yeah. And if you try and take it out, it blows up. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. It's like some <laughs> weird, weird Matrix type movie or something like that. <laughs> Tracking it. But I mean, like, there's just, I work in tech now and there are so many different technology based solutions for things. You've got so much AI, you can put so much in such a small space. Like, I'm not saying that we have to do something that full on, but there are ways that we can utilize technology in a better way that we could be able to actively track and manage these people. Yeah, don't go anywhere near a gymnasium. You you can't go anywhere near a rec center. You can't go anywhere near this kind of location. Like if you do, an alarm will sound or it will alert the police or it will alert a private security agency or something like that. Like how do we not have active tracking and management and thinking about that too, how would how much better would we be able to utilize technology like that for something like managing domestic violence offenders? So how many of them, I think in Queensland and Australia right now, people with an apprehended violence order against them, which is like a restraining order, people that have those out against them in Queensland from intimate partners, 41% of them are being broken. 41%. If you have an alarm that goes off that's deafening if you come within anywhere or or the victim in this case gets an alert on their phone that you're coming that you're near like this is just technology solutions to save lives and i mean we have like you're right we have so much technology i mean even just facial recognition from public cameras could track people so easily but we don't i mean i mean you think about especially domestic violence so i um talking to someone who knows that the, the person who abusing them is keeps driving by their house multiple times a day. Um, they're like, what are you doing? Like, I, there's, there's nothing we really can do at this point, which sucks. I'm like they should have more options than that. I don't know why the people aren't going to jail for that though. Like if you're driving past, it's an obvious intimidation. It's an obvious try, way to try and be omnipresent in somebody's life. And yeah, they're utilizing technology to track people and, you know, offenders are becoming very sophisticated, but and this is just the frustrating thing as well, because you know that every time that there's like a police CCTV photo or something out of somebody who's been caught shoplifting, it's like the grainiest, worst image you've ever seen. I'm like, I could zoom in and see the craters on the moon with my phone. <laughs> um, Why can't so the my- CCTV pick up, I don't know, dickhead's face from down the road? Why, like, what's going on? Right. I, uh, my favorite thing to do on Friday nights is watch on patrol live. So I, <laughs> that's what I do. And it's, you're right. Like everything is like this, that the police have from like past crimes are always the worst, the worst images. But then by the time we actually track them down half the time, they've done something else horrible. I'm like, why didn't we just, why didn't we get them earlier? This is make any sense. I also want to put into law that if you are a business owner and you have an establishment, you have to update your CCTV. Like if it's not updated, you are, you're out. <laughs> yes. It should be, that. there should be. It's like a, um, what's that? Like the fireman standard. Like you can't have this many people in a room. You also must have this amount of security. Yeah, absolutely. That works. That's in HD color that can zoom in greater than five meters. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's so great. I'm so sick of seeing like blobs on the screen and they're just like, have you seen this person? And it's like. It's like that stupid, um, have you seen the the sketch that they did for the man that apparently abducted Madeline McCann? Yeah. Just it's just a circle. <laughs> With some hair. 
I still find that so funny because it's, I mean, obviously a horrible crime, but the police literally, it's a circle, like a, a children's drawn a circle of a face and they've drawn a few strands of hair over the face and that's it. There's no, <laughs> have you seen this man? It's, it's like an like, egg. Yes, obviously. <laughs> Clearly. I Good one. <laughs> Everybody and nobody. I'm like, this is ridiculous, but um, right. yeah, we are coming so, so far and you know, a lot of people message me and ask me things like, what can I do to help? What can I do here and there? And, you know, I think you're doing, you're showing people what they can do. You're, you're showing that you don't have to be the person that's leading these things. There's a petition already that we can sign. You can write to local members of parliament. You can get involved in sharing and, you know, making your own personal community a safe space for victim survivors to speak and learn and adjust the way that they teach their children. So, there is so much on an individual community and wider level that you can do. It's it's easy. Just have a look. Give it a goog. Yes, that's right. And also just just listen because a lot of the times when people share stories, they're not going to share it more than once. So if someone starts opening up to you, just listen and don't don't give opinions. Just listen. That's that's really all they need. Yeah, give them a space. Hold the space with them and allow them to. To share something horrible, I know it's uncomfortable when a lot of people have to go through that as well, but it's uncomfortable for the person telling you to. So give that empathy, be as empathetic as possible, especially around this Christmas kind of period. It is so difficult on so many levels. That's right. Most people think it's always the jolliest, but sometimes it's the hardest too. So just just love everyone nicely. But thank you so much. Tess for coming on. Thank you for all you do. I'm going to link in the show notes of this episode and post a bit about how people can help support your campaign um, and how people can help support you. And I just think that's a wonderful thing that Kim and yourself have been not only able to speak out following what's happened, but are continuing to fight together and create this survivor community as well. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And thank you so much, Tess, for coming on, not only for sharing your story, but for everything that you and the other victim survivors are doing to try your hard to remove the statute of limitations in Kansas for child sexual abuse cases. Now, if you want to support them with the work that they are doing, you can actually email legislators. So I do have a list of the emails that they've put forward and I have a a little brief summary of something that you can write in and say, and I'll post that on the Facebook group, I'll post that on the Instagram and you'll be able to access it um, just by reaching out to me or any of the survivors that have come on as well. Now, I also do recommend that you go back and listen to episode 61 and 62 if you want to learn more about Kim's story as well, if you haven't already, um, as it was thoroughly referenced, I think, throughout this episode as well. So thank you so much. And before we wrap up, I also want to remind you all that we do have a Facebook group called the Survivor Support Network. Now, it is just a Facebook group to come meet your people. We're organizing all of these wonderful events. You can post memes and laugh and you can ask questions about serious things. And I will be posting information about this there as well, because it's a wonderful community and place of just genuine people who want to support other people. So come there, find your people. Thank you so much, Tess, for coming on again. And I'm hoping to have Tess and Kim come back this week where we can do a bit of a recap on everything that's been going on for them at the moment too. Thank you so much for listening to Reclaim Me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. 
Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.